0: Uh, I want to thank Dave for giving me a passage that's one of the biggest tongue twisters in in all of Scripture, but one that speaks very much to the struggle that we find ourselves in. And I'm going to read it off of a paper with enlarged print, um, but you can find it in the in the uh, pulpit Bible in the pew Bibles. Not pulpit, well, the the little ones under the seats there, the red ones. It's on page 800. We're going to read from Romans chapter 7, verse 14. To Romans chapter 8, verse 2. Paul writes, We know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not. But what I hate, I'm sorry, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, no, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life sets me free from the law of sin and death. Sorry, Keith, that is hard to read.
1: Um, Some of you may have heard in the news that we are experiencing what's called an opioid epidemic. Raise your hand if you've heard that. The opioid epidemic refers to the fact that every day in our country, 115 people die to an opiate drug overdose. 115 people a day in our nation. When I'm referring to opiates, I'm referring to things like prescription painkillers or heroin or fentanyl. And this has gotten so bad that the president has referred to it as a national emergency. But a number of local people are saying this isn't just a national emergency, it's actually a local emergency emergency as well. If you look at drug addiction, just in Bucks County, in 2016, 398 people died of a drug overdose in Bucks County. 2017, that number went up to 430 people. And now in 2018, we haven't even reached the end of the year yet, and 493 people have already died of a drug addiction. This is an epidemic that we're experiencing. But I'm only talking so far about drug addiction. There's plenty of other addictions. Just listen to this um, definition of addiction. Or read it. Uh, Addiction is being abnormally tolerant to and dependent on something that is psychologically or physically habit-forming, especially alcohol or narcotic drugs. So we think of alcohol and narcotic drugs. Those are things that come to mind. We think of addiction. But think of the other things that we've been addicted to or we know people have been addicted to these things. Things like pornography, looking at pornographic images online or in other places, or gambling, or food. Any of these things, when you take this definition, can be seen as something that's habit-forming and something that you become dependent on. Maybe a shorthand way of saying it is something that's a harmful habit that you just can't stop doing. A harmful habit that you just can't stop doing. And when you think of it this way, you realize this isn't just an epidemic out there in our communities. It's an experience here in our own church, in the Christian community. Most of us would say that we know somebody in our lives who's experienced some sort of addiction. I know that's true in our church, that we have people who have family members and friends who've experienced addiction. And if we're honest, there's people here in this room who would say either, I've experienced an addiction, or I am currently experiencing some sort of addiction and no one even knows about it. And if you're here and you think, well, I've never experienced an addiction... I don't know anyone. Just give yourself time, because even if you don't meet someone who has an addiction, all of us are only one decision or two decisions away from finding ourselves in the throes of an addiction, which raises the question, given this epidemic out there and this experience in here, what do we do as Christians about it? How do we think about it? How do we respond to it? That's what I want to talk about today, and I want to look through the lens of Romans 7 and 8 to see what does God have to say to us as a people in the midst of a national and local emergency related to this issue of addiction. Now before we walk through Romans 7, I want to give you a little bit of a background on this passage. It takes place within the book of Romans. In the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the church in Rome has been called the fullest expression, Paul's fullest expression of the gospel. The gospel being Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for us. And you see in chapters 5 through 8 that this gospel, when you embrace it, brings about a change in us. Chapter 7, though, brings up the fact that that process of change brings with it some challenges. There are challenges to change in Christ, and there's opportunities, there's resources for change. And when we look at these opportunities and resources, when we look at this chapter in light of the addiction crisis that we're facing, I think there's a big idea we're going to walk away with. And the big idea is this. God is able to rescue us from addiction. God is able to rescue us from addiction. How does he do it? We'll look at three different ways that come out in this passage. First, he rescues us through loving warnings. Second, through revealing our own powerlessness, and then third, through the gospel. First, through loving warnings. If if you're familiar at all with the field of addiction and some of the conversation happening right now, you'll hear that there's a debate going on. And that debate is between seeing uh, addiction mainly as a disease or seeing it as a decision. So the people who see it as a decision want to say, we are more morally responsible for our actions we need to be accountable for the actions that that we make as humans the people on the disease side want to disease side want to emphasize that there are certain people who be who may be uh, who may be more biologically predisposed to an addiction that goes beyond just mere choice so for example in my family tree there's alcoholism So according to this way of thinking, I may be more predisposed to that addiction than some other people. And the people in that perspective want to also emphasize the fact that when somebody begins to take a drug or begins to take anything or do anything that leads to an addiction, typically people aren't saying, I want to start getting addicted to something. Typically they then find themselves in addiction because biologically that just takes over. I think both sides are trying to look at different aspects of the human experience. We don't have time to pull out all parts of the debate today. But both sides can also agree on something. And it's this, that all addiction does begin with a decision. It's a decision to experiment with something. To try out something, not thinking it's going to lead anywhere, but just thinking, I want this. I want to try this out. Experiment. Because of this reality, we have what's called early prevention efforts in our communities, in our schools. This is where we try to help kids say, here are some of the realities of addiction. Here are some of the things you need to be paying attention to. We try to warn our kids about things they might want to see and addictions they might find themselves in if they make certain decisions. In Romans 7, what we see is what could be called a divine prevention effort. Okay, it's God's divine prevention effort. And he calls it the law. So read with me in in verses 14, how Paul talks about the law. He says in verse 14 that the law is spiritual. In verse 16, he says that the law is good. In verse 23, he says, or 22, he says that he delights in the law. This law that he's talking about is the first five books of the Bible, And it's really embodied in, famously, the Ten Commandments. And Paul loves this law because it really functions for him as an act of love, as loving warnings for people to keep them from behaviors, keep them from ways of thinking, keep them from harmful habits. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, These things happen to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. The law, God's word, gives us warnings so that we will find ourselves eluding something that can cause us harm. Now, despite Paul saying this law is good and spiritual and delightful, it's probably not a surprise to you that not everyone thinks of God's law that way. I was speaking to someone um, recently, who was saying to me how much she didn't like God's law. She said she felt like God's law, in particular, this command, you shall have no other gods before me, as really being um, just narrow. Sort of, She felt like it was like a spiritual straitjacket. She thought it was petty and insecure. She thought, what's up with God that he feels like he's so insecure that he can't handle it if some people worship another God? Like, you have plenty of people worshiping you. Can't you just let some people decide that it makes them happy to worship some other God? And what a cosmic killjoy God is, she thought, and she told me, given a law like this. And you might kind of resonate with her argument a little bit. Huh, it's interesting, I had never thought of that. But I knew that wasn't the full reality of what the law was there for, that it's not just a spiritual straitjacket, cosmic killjoy, petty and insecure God. Because I remember a conversation I had with another friend. And this friend was in the throes of drug addiction. And this friend said to me, in the midst of coming to terms with his addiction, he said, I have realized that I made drugs my God. And he said, if I'm going to see any change, I'm realizing I need to make Jesus my God and not drugs. See, for this person, Exodus 23, have no other gods before me. It's not some petty and insecure God saying, you need to worship me or I'm going to get upset. It's actually a loving warning that my friends saw if he had heeded could have potentially changed the course of his life. And he saw that he needed in order to move from a place of addiction to a place of freedom. So one of the first things God does as he rescues us from addiction is on the front end, he tries to give us loving warnings. And right now, some of us in our men's discipleship group, we're reading uh, the book of Numbers. And sometimes you can read the Old Testament and think, wow, this guy, he's, he's so hardcore. I mean, he's just like on people and commanding people things. And where's the God of love? But I think we need to slow down and see actually his commands are love for us. They're loving warnings that can keep us from the harmful habits that we can get enslaved So the first way God rescues us from addiction on the front end is through loving warnings. The second way is through revealing our powerlessness. Revealing our powerlessness. So we just looked at the fact that in verses 14 and 16 and 22, Paul is saying the law is spiritual, good, and delightful. But notice what happens. In each of those places, Paul contrasts the law with what he sees inside of himself. Look with me again. Verse fourteen, the law is unspirit. I uh, the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. Go to verse seventeen. After saying that the law is good, but sin is living within me. If you go down to verse twenty-two and twenty-three, he delights in the law with his mind, but there is this sin nature within him that. Wars against it. That rages against it. Paul summarizes his own position, his own relationship with the law with two summary statements. He says in verse 14 that he is a slave to sin. And later on in verse 23 that he is a prisoner. A slave and a prisoner. That language is the same exact language you might hear in an AA meeting. Where people say, I just feel like I'm being controlled by this addiction. I'm a slave to it. I'm a prisoner to it. The phrase Paul uses in verse 15, you might also hear. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. He says in verse 15. That's the exact feeling and situation of someone who's addicted to a substance. Which makes us realize that what Paul's talking about here when he says that he's a slave to sin, when he says that he is a prisoner to sin, he's basically using our, if we were to use our modern language, he's saying that he is addicted to sin. He is a sin addict. This harmful habit of sin that he just cannot stop doing. He wants to stop, but he just can't. When we think of ourselves as actually having a sin addiction, as being sin addicts, what does that do? How does that change how we live? Well, I think it changes in a couple different ways. First of all, it means none of us should ever look down at another person who is in the throes of an addiction to a substance or an image or a food and think we are better than them. Think that we could never find ourselves in a situation like that. Because the reality is, all of us are in a situation like that in relation to sin. Unfortunately, this isn't always the case. People don't always say that the church is a place where everyone freely admits that they are sin addicts. I was reading a book by Phil Yancey called Church, Why Bother? And in this book, he is interviewing somebody who uh, decided he was going to leave the church for AA. Not go to AA and the church, but he was leaving the church for AA. And this is the reason that he gives. He says, none of us can make it on our own. Isn't that why Jesus came? Yet most church people give off a self-satisfied air of piety or superiority. I don't sense them consciously leaning on God or on each other their lives appear to be in order. An alcoholic who goes to church feels inferior and incomplete. May it never be said at Grace Community Church that someone who's addicted to alcohol or drugs or pornography or food or gambling or anything else would say that when they come here, they feel inferior. We should be the type of church that resembles more of an AA meeting where we say, we all, fall short. We all know what it's like to feel controlled by something and to do things that we just can't stop doing. Where the things we want to do, we don't do, and the things we don't want to do, we do. That's what Paul is saying we know as Christians. So we should never give off the sense that we are superior to other people. The second thing it means, in addition to not looking down on people, is we should realize, given the fact that we have an addiction to sin, that just like any addiction, we are powerless to do anything about it in our own strength. What does Paul say in verse 24? What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Who will rescue me? Implicit in that statement is the fact that he's certainly not going to rescue himself. He needs someone else to rescue him. He is powerless over this addiction to sin that he has. And that might sound depressing at first and daunting, especially if you're here and you're in the midst of an addiction. I am powerless to do anything about this. But actually, Paul coming to this place of powerlessness in his own life, this realization and and admission on his part, is actually a really healthy thing for him to do. And this is why A.A., And Celebrate Recovery, if you've ever heard of that, that's sort of like a more explicitly Christian form of the 12-step program. Both of those groups have as their first step of recovery this statement. We admitted we were powerless over our addictions and compulsive behaviors, that our lives had become unmanageable. Powerless. What Paul understood about his addiction to sin Everyone needs to understand as a first step, as a foundational step, if they're going to make any progress in recovery to any addiction. Right now, are you in the midst of an addiction? And are you thinking, I'm just going to handle it on my own. I don't need to tell anybody. I'll just solve it. If that's true, do you notice that it keeps on getting worse? And it's not going away. That you need other people, you need help. You are powerless in and of your own strength. And if you know someone who's in the midst of an addiction, and you're just thinking, why don't they just stop it? Why don't they just get over it? Do you realize how powerless we are to just conquer something in and of our own strength? Now, so far we've seen that God rescues us from addiction through loving warnings. But even those loving warnings, because of the sin living in us, we often don't Therefore, we find ourselves in the midst of an addiction to, to sin or to a substance or to an image. And then in the midst of that, we have to come to terms, and God helps us through Scripture come to terms with the fact that we're all sinners and we're powerless to be able to do anything about it. Thank God that that's not where it ends, that there's a third way and it's the ultimate climactic way that God rescues people from addiction. And it's through the gospel. The gospel being the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for us. Why do I say that? Let's go back to verse 24 where we left off with Paul. Paul is asking this question. Again, I'll read it in verse 24. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Now he answers his own question. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Paul says, who's going to rescue me? And his answer is, Jesus. And he references the gospel here, which begs the question, how on earth does the gospel rescue someone from addiction, whether it be to sin or to substance or to image? How does that happen? Well, I think what Paul's showing us is that the gospel is able to free us both from the impact of addiction in our past and the impact of addiction in our future. What do I mean by that? If you've lived a life where you can say, like Paul, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, that I do. You probably, if you look back honestly on your life, will have some regrets. we Will have some things you've done that you say, I wish I hadn't done that. And maybe you condemn yourself for it. Maybe you're afraid that God will condemn you for it. Or maybe you've just blocked them out because you don't want to have to think about it. What Paul is saying is, through the cross of Jesus, that condemnation in your own heart and that condemnation from God that you fear can be fully taken away from your past. Because all that sin, all those things you did that you regret can be take, that Christ takes upon himself on the cross, removes them so that you can be free of that slavery to your past. And does that mean that the consequences are fully gone in this life? Does that mean that we don't still have to make amends with people we've hurt? No. And that comes later even in the 12-step programs, the importance of those uh, horizontal relationships we have. But when it comes to that vertical relationship with God, when it comes to that sense that I am condemned, I am guilty, and I can't do anything to take back what I did, that can be removed through the death of Jesus. How does this impact the future, though? So you... So you are okay now. You're not condemned for your past. What about this future life? What about the future prospects of living with addiction? Well, fortunately, Jesus didn't just die. Jesus rose again. And the power of his resurrection is the same power he gives to his people through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, notice, doesn't come up really much at all in the passage we just read until you get to chapter 8. And now he starts talking about the reality and the power of the Spirit Notice in verse 2 what he says. Through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Through the Spirit, we can have freedom from these harmful habits that we can't stop doing. Because while we're powerless, God is not. And the Spirit gives us a power that can break through and end the prison, the slavery to these addictions that we find in our lives. This is why step two in Celebrate Recovery says this, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. After admitting your own powerlessness, you realize there's a power greater than us. And that power is the Holy Spirit's ability to free us from those harmful habits that we just can't stop on our own. Does that mean mean the struggle is over? Some people might conclude that this is a before and after everything's different. Some people, I, I haven't mentioned as much as this is the biggest tongue twister in the Bible, it's also one of the most debated passages in the Bible. There are brilliant people on both sides of this debate. And the debate says, is chapter 7, the I want to do things I don't do and I don't do the things I want to do, is that experience of chapter 7 a pre-Christian spirit experience? Or is it an experience in the life of the Christian after coming to Christ? Some people believe that once you come to Christ, that's no longer a reality. You have complete freedom from even the struggle of addiction, whether that be to sin or to a substance or anything. Um, They see the fact that there is no Holy Spirit in chapter 7 and now chapter 8. There's a lot of the Holy Spirit. means that there's been that amazing divide. And I do think that we do see a change that happens. We do see an impact from the Holy Spirit bringing us freedom, giving us power where we didn't have it. But I don't think chapter 7 is referring to a pre-Christian experience. Because in verse 24, after Paul asks that question and then answers it in verse 25, that God is the one to free him, he still references in verse 25 the reality of the sinful nature that's within him. I don't think the struggle is over. But we now do have strength, new strength to be able to engage in that struggle. New power for that battle that we find ourselves in. And each person's journey is going to look a little bit different in terms of what that freedom looks like. I was at a conference once where a person spoke about addiction in their life and they said, I came to Christ and the second I came to Christ, I no longer wanted the thing I was addicted to at all. It was gone. Just total freedom, night and day. I've talked to other people who've said, when I came to Christ, I stopped depending on myself. I started depending on him, and I saw change, and I saw freedom. But that freedom is a a one-day-at-a-time daily battle because the impact of that addiction is that I still have a craving in my body for it. Neurologically, I still desire whatever that thing is that I was addicted to. So no, I still crave things. I still desire things. And just like us, if you're addicted to sin, which we all have been, you still may find yourself going, that pattern, that habit, that way of responding, I still find it coming up within me, even though I have the Holy Spirit. The change is that even though Even though a change has happened, even though the struggle is still there, even though the battle is still there, you now have been equipped for that battle. You now have a new power to fight that battle. We now have resources that we didn't have prior. And resources that I think we badly need as a church to be able to support one another in using is the resources of a new identity that comes through the gospel and a new family that comes from the gospel. And I want to close with thinking about these resources. When you come to Christ, you are no longer at your core an addict. You are no longer at your core a sinner. When you come to Christ, you are now a child of God. And as a child of God, you are part of a family of God. And that family of God is there for you to walk with you, to support you, to help you live out that life of the Spirit. It's never this sort of by yourself, me and the Holy Spirit, fighting addiction to sin, fighting addiction to substance. It's always going to be you, the Holy Spirit, and your spiritual family that is with you. And if you want to learn more about how to be that sort of family to your loved ones, how to be that sort of family in our own church... One of the things that's coming up on October 6th up in Percisee, the Revival's Counseling Center, is what's called a Faith Summit. There's information in your bulletin. And it's there uh, to sort of help the church think through, how can we support one another? How can we be a church that lives out the gospel for people struggling with addiction? To get a sense of what it looks like to be that sort of family that does this, um, I want to tell you a little, little story. It's told by David Crowder, who's a singer-songwriter, who writes, writes this song that we're actually going to sing a little bit of in a minute, called All My Hope. It's about all our hope being in Jesus for the things that shackle us, the slavery we have, to certain harmful habits that we just can't stop. And he says, what kind of led to that song being written was that he was what, uh, he was at something called a prodigal party. A prodigal party was this man was coming out of prison. And in coming out of prison, his community threw a party for him, both to let him know you're not a prisoner anymore, to celebrate that, and to also be there saying, we're going to walk with you in this new life, with your new identity, as your family and friends. And Crowder went on to say, you know, that was for someone literally coming out of prison, But we all have these prisons that the gospel invites us to come out of. And when we come out, we're naive if we think we can just do it alone. If we can find freedom without those resources of the family of God that the gospel provides. So when we think about that, the question is, how can we live out that sort of story? How can we be that sort of family? Crowder in the song says this, I'm no stranger to prison. I've worn shackles and chains, but I've been freed and forgiven and I'm not going back. I'll never be the same. If someone in our own church wants to leave their addiction and is finding that they are depending on God for it and they want to never go back to it, they are not going to be able to do that if we as their family, as their spiritual family, doesn't do the sorts of things that AA and NA and Celebrate Recovery do. Not, that doesn't mean that in every space in our church, we're all talking about all our addictions and that we're leaving everything out there for everyone. But it does mean there should be spaces in our church where we know that there are people we can trust, who we can talk about what we've gone through, what we are going through, and to support them as their spiritual family, reminding them that they are a child of God Because through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he is able to rescue us from any harmful habits that we just can't stop. You know what those harmful habits are in your own life. If you're here today and you're trying to battle those on your own, I invite you to get someone else in your life who you can trust to begin helping you, to begin helping you walk in the power of the Spirit. And if you're here today and you know someone else who's struggling, then I want you to ask yourself before you leave, what's one thing you can do to live out this message of freedom that the gospel gives us in another person's life? How can you be Jesus to that person? Take time to ask that question of yourself. We're going to take, in a few moments, we're going to now sing this song that David Crowder wrote. We're going to sing at least part of it as the worship team leads us. And just be thinking about your own life, your own relationships, and what God's calling you today as we sing. Let's pray. Father, help us as a church to be the type of church where people don't feel like they need to leave in order to find real community, like AA. But help us to be a church that can complement those sorts of other ministries in people's lives. Be the type of church where we all recognize our own struggle with sin, where we all recognize that we are powerless in and of ourselves, apart from the power of your spirit, to be able to do anything about these harmful habits in our life. Help us to experience freedom from whatever we are feeling enslaved to. And help us to live out the grace you showed us to one another. I pray for the people in our community that are experiencing so much bondage. The families that are dealing with death of a loved one due to addiction. Use your church, the Church of Jesus, to make a difference both here in our own community and in the world in relation to this epidemic. Help us to be Jesus to this hurting world. It's in his name we
0: pray. Amen.